0: Good morning, it's, uh, it's an honor for me to be here on Father's Day, um, particularly since all three of my children are here, um, so I'm, uh, I'm honored to be here speaking on fatherhood, but I'm really going to divide this, this message into two parts, uh, I want to make a few comments about um, fatherhood, uh, but really spend more time, and this was what Gil Cracky suggested when he asked me to, 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 to teach the class, about uh, God's view of manhood. What, is, what does the Bible teach? Because uh, I think this is foundational uh, if you're going to be a good father. Um, and some of this comes from the book that I wrote, The True Measure of Man. And I share that primarily because I had a lot of women who have read the book. And in fact, there was a, uh, a group up in North Carolina, uh, a, a women's group, that read and discussed the book. And I was told it went very, very well. And then I was, uh, I was talking to a, uh, uh, a good friend of my wife, and she said, you know, I read the book True Measure of a Man, and for the first time, it really helped me understand my husband and really understand my teenage son. And I share that because um, this isn't going to be just a message for men. This is a message that I think that we all can get something out of. But where I want to start is by telling you uh, and sharing with you that um, the longer I live, the more I come to see and recognize that us as fathers, I don't think we realize how we as fathers have such a great impact upon our children, particularly our children's spiritual formation and their view of God the Father. I'm not sure how many of you uh, know a guy here in Birmingham, Larry Taunton, Fixed Point Foundation. Uh, Larry does great work. Yeah, he's a good friend. And he shared with me a, a series of interviews that he did with college students and he honed in on these college, these were, these were interviews all over the country from college students who had joined atheist organizations. And he was trying to figure out and get a, get a real good grip on what, what happened. How did you as a, as a you know, 19, 20 year old um, become an atheist? And he had this extensive interview that, that uh, he went through with him. And one of the things that he found out one of the things he discovered and really kind of shocked him is how many of these students had grown up in church-going families. And, but as he, he, as he discussed that with them, he realized that um, in almost every case, they shared that my dad had no real interest in the goings-ons, in the goings-ons of the church. He said, this was something they all recognized. He says, this, there was this pattern that, that mom was the one that always promoted the church. And either their fathers just didn't go to church, or they recognized that when dad did go to church, he just kind of checked out, didn't participate at all. And he said, he recognized, they all recognized fairly early that God and Christianity in the eyes of their fathers, had little or no value at all. There's a fascinating book written by Dr. Paul Vitz. Um, Dr. Vitz, is a reti- he's retired. He was a very well-known psychologist. He got his Ph.D. at Stanford. He taught for years at NYU. And what's interesting about him, um, he specializes in what's called... The psychology of atheism. He was an atheist himself until his late 30s, and then he became a Christian. And he was fascinated as he looked back on his own life. He did a significant started doing a significant amount of research because he had this idea that a, a person's relationship with their father had an impact on how they viewed God, particularly. God the Father. And he wrote a book called Faith of the Fatherless. And after all this extensive research, he proposes this. These these are his words. Atheism of the strong or intense type is to a substantial degree generated by the peculiar psychological needs of its advocates. And he studied the lives of numerous renowned atheists and found a stunning link between atheism and fatherlessness. He called it the the defective father hypothesis. And it's the notion that a broken relationship with your father predisposes some people, not all, he doesn't make a blanket statement, but predisposes some people to reject God. Now he realized that some people are very critical of trying to use psychology to explain Strident atheism, but Vol- but Vitz reminds us. He says these are his words. We must remember that it is atheists themselves who began the psychological approach to the question of belief, and he was referring to Sigmund Freud. You see, Freud believed that people project their concept of a loving father to the entire cosmos to fulfill their wish for ultimate comfort in a dangerous world and he says he believed that freud provides and these are his words a straightforward rationale for understanding the wish-fulfilling origin of the rejection of god freud makes the simple and easily understandable claim that once a child or youth is disappointed in or loses respect for his earthly father belief in a heavenly father becomes impossible in other words, an atheist' disappointment in and resentment of his own father unconsciously justifies his rejection of God. And then he lists scores of famous atheists whose lives he researched all of them. I mean, this is from David Hume to Friedrich Nietzsche to Bertrand Russell to Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, Voltaire, Freud, H.G. Wells. And one of the things he also noticed, a pattern... Not all, but over 95% were men. Interesting. And Vince is very clear. You know, being fatherless may be because the father died when they were young. But in many cases, they were abandoned by their fathers, usually through divorce, never saw their dads again. Some were just absent. They may have been in the home, but they were just absent, detached from their kids. But he's very clear about this. Having a defective father does not guarantee a person will become an atheist. Or I would say if you have a child that doesn't have really real interest in their faith, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are a defective father. But the research is clear that we fathers do impact our children's spiritual formation and their view of God. About three weeks ago I had a man that... uh, I know, I know him fairly well. He's from Mobile, and he came to Birmingham. He was picking up his two grand, two of his grandsons and taking them back to Mobile for a couple of weeks in the summer. And uh, he, he came by my office just to, to visit for a few minutes, and, and he was, uh, one of his grandsons was 19, one of them was, was, was 21. And I asked him, I said, uh, or he said to me, asked me, he said, would you pray for my grandsons? He said, they're both atheists. And as we got to talking, uh, we got to their relationship with their father, his son-in-law. And he said, they hate his guts. They hate their father's guts. Would you pray for him? I mean, this is just kind of consistent with what Vitz is saying. And again, I share this to impact, to emphasize the impact that we do have on our children and their view of God and their their own personal faith. Now, from this point I want to completely shift gears and go in a different direction. And I want to talk about the biblical view of manhood, which I believe is foundational if we're going to be good fathers and good husbands. And growing up, I've often wondered how many young boys or challenged, it may be it may be by by a parent, it may be by an older sibling, it may be by a coach or a teacher. But I wonder sometimes how often a, a young boy growing up hears these words. You need to be a man. You need to be a man. And I wonder what they think when they hear those words. I mean does it mean you're to be tough, you're to be strong, you're never to cry, you're never to show your emotions. And I've concluded that probably most young young boys when they hear that don't have a clue of what to think in fact it may make them feel kind of shameful you know there's a there was a Pentagon document I watched a, a, um, a documentary early this year on the Pentagon Papers which some of you probably remember and I think this is where this came from that Lyndon Johnson said that and this is recorded this is this is this is documented that that the main reason or one of the main reasons he did not want to pull out of Vietnam he said because it, do, it, it does not make me look very manly and I started to think you know I wonder how world events over the centuries have been shaped by male leaders who were worried about whether they appeared to be manly. There was an article in the New York Times earlier this year, um, or I, I, it was, I think it was last summer, and it was about a professor, a Dr. Michael Kimmel, And Kimmel is the founder and director of the Center for the Study of Men and Masculinities at Stony Brook University, which is a New York State school. And the article describes one of his days in the classroom. He sits in front of the classroom. He's got a big whiteboard behind him. And he's got a marker. And he writes up. He says, I want, and he puts up on the board the phrase, good man. And he asks the class, which is, I think, predominantly male, He says, what does it mean to be a good man? And the class was, they didn't say anything. And he said, imagine at your funeral, they say to you, he was a good man. What does that mean to you? And finally, one student says, to be caring. Another said, putting other people's needs before your own. To be honest. And so he stood up there listing what it meant to be a good man. And then he walked over to the other side of the board and he wrote down, now I want to know, what do you think it means to be a real man? And he wrote, real man. And he said they just started coming up with with answers. It means to take charge and be authoritative. Another said it means to take risks in life. Another said it means suppressing any kind of weakness. And then a, a, young, uh, a young man who had grown up in Turkey says, I think for me, here in America, it means being a real man means to talk like a man, walk like a man, and never cry. And so Kimmel had two long lists of under, one under good man and one under real, real man. And then he said this I don't know if you realize it, but you're now in the wheelhouse pointing up to, the, up to the board, and he said this. Look at the disparity. He said, I think American men are confused about what it really means to be a man. And I think he's right. You know, one of the most brilliant people to ever live was French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal And he made this very simple, but I think very significant observation about human life. And he said, one of the reasons that we struggle so much in this life is because we have false ideas about reality. We have false ideas about life and how it works. One of the things that I like to do often is um, find what I consider significant words that are found in the Bible, and then I'll do a word study and see all the places in Scripture where you find that one word. And I did this with the word, beware. God uses that word a lot in the Scripture, beware. And Jesus uses it a lot as well. But you know where He primarily uses it? He primarily primarily uses it to warn people, beware of false teachers. In other words, beware of believing what is false. Because the problem is when you live with false ideas, you don't know you have them until you get burnt by the belief. I want to read to you three verses from the book of Luke as it pertains to this. Uh, These are Jesus' own words in Luke 11, starting in verse 34. And he says this, he says, The lamp of your body is your eye, and when your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. He says, Then watch out that the light in you may not be darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it shall be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Now, for years, that's, that, those words are also in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus says this twice. And I don't know about you, but for years, whenever I encountered those three, three verses, I had no clue what he was talking about. I was clueless. And about 12 years ago, I decided to do some research to try to figure out what is he saying here? And after I I concluded my research, I even consulted with a guy that I knew who was an expert in the Greek language, and he confirmed this, that your eye is your perception of reality. It's the lens through which you see life. Stephen Covey calls it a paradigm, your paradigm. Some use the term worldview, but I think the word that we're probably most familiar with and understand best is the word perspective, that we all have a perspective, and what Jesus is telling us is that your perspective can be rooted in the truth, and if it is, your life will be full of light, but he says also it can be rooted in falsehood. And if it is, your life will be full of darkness. And then he says in 35, he says, Watch out and make sure that the light you think you have is not, in fact, darkness. And this leads to the the important point I really want to make, and that is this. And this is through the work that I do for 16 years. I've been working with men in this men's ministry that I'm involved with. I believe that men struggle so much in life because they have false ideas of what it means to be masculine. There's a guy by the name of Joe Ehrman. He calls it false masculinity. He wrote this wonderful book called Season of Life. He's a former, I mean, he's kind of a macho guy. He was an NFL all-pro uh, for like 10 years with the Baltimore Coats. I think they're the Baltimore they're Indianapolis coats now. And he conducts these men's conferences. And he'll have a, a room maybe this size of men. And he'll hand out a blank index card. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to write out your definition of masculinity. And he said and he says that's all I want you to do. On that card, I want you to write out your understanding of true masculinity. And he says, so many of these men are just dumbfounded. They have no idea what to write. And he says, many men who consider themselves to be, quote, real men, he says, are just clueless. And then he describes how all this comes to pass in the life of, of, of a man. And he says, it begins when they're young boys. I'm just going to read this. Uh, this is right out of his book, which I have put in in the book that I wrote, The True Measure of Man. He says it begins on the playground in elementary school as young boys begin to play sports. He says the better athletes are elevated in the eyes of their peers, and those who are not as athletic become kind of deflated. The ability to athletically perform seems to be dominant in the lives of young boys. Of course, you have to ask yourself, what happens to a young boy that's not athletic? And then they reach puberty and move on to high school where their lives are measured by their ability to relate to and win the opposite sex. A real man has the ability to attract girls. A teenage boy has to project the macho image that women love. Irma notes that it's very shameful for young men if they feel like women are not attracted to them. And then as an adult, he says, economic success becomes the gauge with which a man measures his life. Is as if one's whole value and worth as a man is based on job titles and bank account balances. Those who achieve and acquire the most are, de- are, are deemed to be real men. And this is the problem. If this is our view of masculinity, we are setting ourselves up for all kind of problems and pain and frustration as the years go by. You see, this is kind of how it plays out. For most men, life is all about what I do and how successful I am at what I do, which leads me to wonder, as I'm going along in life, what do you think about what I do? How do you evaluate me in my life? What do you think about me? And this is what causes you as a person to begin to worry about how you appear in the eyes of others. This is what makes us feel compelled to impress others and to win their approval. And the great question is that we all ought to sit back and ask ourselves is, how much different would your life be today? How much different would your life be if you didn't worry about what people thought. You see, I contend it would be incredibly liberating. But it gets worse. In fact, this is a great topic of conversation that a husband and wife can have. Um, it, it, it definitely um, would be stimulating. I'll put it that way. What happens, we go from being life being all about what I do to worrying about what you think about what I do and how I do it. But then this, this, this thought creeps in. What if I fail at what I do? What would you think about me then? You see, clearly what I've learned is that one of man's greatest fears is the fear of failing it's like a psychological death in their eyes. And this is a tr- I believe this is a true statement. Most, not all, but most men are not driven to succeed. They are driven not to fail. I'll never forget having an incredibly successful man in business tell me and I was shocked I, this is kind of what got me going down this road to understand this but he said every day that my feet hit the floor I am driven by the fear of failing Bernie Madoff was asked why he had concocted you know the the great Ponzi scheme that defrauded people out of so much money he'd been in prison for a year it really was his first interview and he said this, as a boy, I watched my father fail financially. And he said, therefore, I was driven not to fail. He said, I, don't, I didn't want to lose the honor and esteem of people in my sphere of influence. Do you see how this kind of just cascades into our lives? you see what it can do to a man and even a, even a woman? It's amazing what false masculinity can do to you. And you know where its biggest influence for men is? Is in their relationships. And by the way, this is where there's such a great divergence, and one of the great divergences between men and women. For instance, if you take my wife, Holly, who is a very relational person, and say one of you, one of you women and Holly went to Starbucks for coffee couple of times that don't even know each other it is amazing what y'all will say to each other and the conversations you'll have and how transparent you'll be with each other and yet you get two men in that same situation and we like to talk we just like to talk about sports or politics or business or even if we're Christians we might talk about some spiritual things some heady things But you see, men rarely share their struggles and their problems and their fears with anybody. Because we somehow come to believe that as men, we're not supposed to struggle. We're not supposed to get down. And real men never get depressed. Because that would betray this male identity that I have. You remember that... Some of you I know remember it uh, as I look around your age Um, you remember the song by Simon and Garfunkel I am a rock I'm an island a rock feels no pain and an island never cries men somehow come to think that's what I'm supposed to be and this is why we hide ourselves from others because we don't want anyone to know we're struggling because if you knew I was struggling What would you think about me? What would you think about me as a man? And this is why I find it makes for a very lonely life for a lot of men. So what do we do? Remember Pascal said we struggle because we have false ideas about reality? And he says we have to uproot these false ideas and replace them with the truth. And Jesus says the same thing, that our perspective needs to be rooted in what is true. And that creates the question, okay, so what is a real man? What is the true measure of a man? And of course the real answer lies not in what the world tells us, but what does God say? What does a man How is a real man described in biblical terms? You know, my first understanding of this came years ago when I first encountered the verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with, that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. And when I heard that verse, I thought man that is a great promise that as a Christian God is causing whatever is going on in my life he's causing all things to work together for my good the problem that I had though was how I interpreted the word good because in my life in my thought the ultimate good was my success my prosperity my financial well-being this is what I thought the good life was until sometime later, someone pointed out to me, you need to maybe read the next verse and you'll get a better understanding of that word good. And the next verse talks about that we are to be conformed to the image of God's Son. To be Christ-like. So maybe that was the ultimate good. That was what a real man was, was to be Christ-like. One of my favorite quotes outside of the scriptures comes from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's a Nobel Prize winning author from the Soviet Union. What most people don't know is that he spent eight years in his 20s, early 30s, he spent eight years in a Russian gulag because he'd written some disparaging remarks about Joseph Stalin. Stalin. He went into prison as an atheist. And he came out of prison as a Christian, very devoted to Christ. And the first words that he said as he came out of prison is, I bless you, prison. I bless you for being in my life. For there, lying on rotting prison straw, I learned that the object of life was not prosperity as I had grown up believing but it is the maturing of the soul. You know, Solzhenitsyn really raises, I think, a great question. What is the object of life? You know, for so many years, for me, it was business success, prosperity, financial well-being. Solzhenitsyn says, no, it is the maturing of the soul. It's the transformation of my heart and my character. It's to know God. You see, our lives get all out of whack because we believe true manhood is about performing and achieving and accumulating. But Solzhenitsyn and God Himself is saying, I'm much more interested in your heart and in your soul and the type of man or woman that you are becoming. Now, when I first confronted or was confronted with this idea about becoming Christ-like, it really didn't have a lot of appeal to me, really because of ignorance. I thought to become Christ-like meant you have to become real religious and just very, very serious about everything. But as I read and studied the life of Jesus, I began to realize very quickly, He wasn't religious at all. In fact, those who were religious hated Him. They didn't like who he hung out with. They didn't like what he said. They didn't like the way he treated them. And, of course, they didn't like the fact that he was developing this big following. And then you look at how courageous he was. I mean, he was fearless. Yet, at the same time, he was also very tender and very compassionate. We see him weep over Jerusalem. We see him weep at the grave of Lazarus. And so what I've determined, and what I've come up with, is that true masculinity is Christ-likeness, and Christ-likeness involves at least three, maybe more, but three significant components. And as we go, I go through this, I think this is what manhood's all about. The first has to do with your character. And the foundation of Jesus' character was his humility. Andrew Murray says humility is the root of all virtue and character. But character is not emphasized in our culture today because we are focused on performing and achieving. Back in April there was a long article in the Wall Street Journal about Harvard Business School and this is a quote out of the article, a modern business education provides theories and metrics but no real moral center. You see, the quality of a person's life and their relationships is determined by their inward character. Even Thomas Jefferson says, virtue is the foundation of a truly happy life. So that's where it starts, was with our character. A second component is something that I I just have written a book on and I'll be speaking on next week, and that is Wisdom. You see, wisdom enables you to understand how life works. It enables you to see the laws and principles that govern life and that are woven into our earthly existence. Wise people think clearly and maturely. They have a depth to their lives. They see and understand also all of the lies and falsehood that we're confronted with in our culture. And ultimately, wise people make very good choices and decisions. They're very forward-thinking. They realize that the decisions I make today and my life tomorrow are connected. And the final component, I would say, is, and maybe the most significant, is the ability to love. The ability to love. I think the true mark of a man is his ability to love, and it's found in the quality of his relationships with others. Beginning with the relationship with his wife and his children. But one area that we neglect is our friendships and relationships with other men. I don't think we realize how important friendship is in life. Because for most men, real in depth, Transparent friendships are hard to come by. And yet, I contend that friendship can bring something into your life that marriage and family just can't. This is a quote out of The True Measure of Man. Really good friendships have to be deliberately pursued and forged over time. And when we are willing to come out of hiding, be vulnerable, and be willing to share our secrets with a close friend or two, these friendships will deepen. It seems that the power to honor the truth is, and speak the truth openly or at the heart of being, a, of being a healthy, authentic man. Now, a question that I usually get around this point whenever I make this presentation is, and it's a good question, how do you become Christ-like? I mean, all of this, I mean, I think sounds good, But how do I make that a reality in my own life? And this is the answer. You can't do it on your own strength and power. We don't have the resources within us to do that. It's like Augustine said that we are very feeble and weak, and we therefore need something outside of ourselves to come in and transform our lives. And this is what I've learned, and this is what I truly believe, is that the deeper that we go into our relationship with God, the greater the transformation that takes place in my life. Please hear this. I'm not talking about being religious. And I'm not talking about trying to do good. I'm talking about the life of God working in the hearts and souls of men and women through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is God enabling us to do that which we cannot do ourselves. Now I want to close, I've got two, I think, really good illustrations to um, tie all this together. And the first is, um, and it's, it's, it's really kind of the heart, uh, towards the end of, of, of the book, True Measure of Man, and it's, it's, a, it's a theory, there's nothing, nothing Christian about this. It's a theory by sociologist Charles Cooley called the looking glass self, you may be familiar with it. And in its simplest form, this is what the theory is: that a person gets their identity, their sense of worth, based how on the most important person in their life sees them. Does that makes sense. We get our worth based on how the most important people in our lives see us and view us. Then Cooley says, for a child, it's their parents. And this is why, in parenting, you need to love and encourage and build up your children instead of tear them down. He says, but over time, as they approach their teenage years, and we all know this, there's a new person that becomes most important to them, and that's their peers. That's why we we should see and understand the power of peer pressure. That's the most important person in their lives. But as we become adults, nothing really changes. We value most the opinion of our friends, our colleagues, our people in our community, maybe even the people in our church. They become the audience that we perform for. And what happens is that most of us allow them to make the final verdict on our lives. And the problem in doing so, it sets in motion all the problems that I've described this morning. But let me ask you this question. What if, what if Jesus becomes the most important person in your life? How do you think that would change you? I contend it would change you radically. It would transform your life. Because not, because first of all, when you look at Jesus, You know what? He thinks you're terrific. And he loves you unconditionally. And it's a love that is not based on your performance or your success in life, it's based on how valuable we are to him. As I wrap this up, and I'll give due credit, this is from a teaching that I got from Tim Keller. And it's based on a verse in Romans, I mean in Colossians 1.27, um, where Paul says, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, working in you, is the hope of glory. To me, this is the hope the only real hope for our world that we live in today you see the gospel you see this in a number of the parables is compared to a tiny seed but what we don't realize about a little seed a seed has paradoxical strength to it we just don't think about it very much i mean take a little acorn a small little acorn You know it seems so small and so powerless and yet there's everything in that acorn to grow it into a large powerful oak tree. And if you take that one acorn and it grows into a big oak tree out of that oak tree comes hundreds maybe thousands of little acorns. And so a single acorn over time, has the power in it to cover the world in oak trees and wood. And the gospel is like a little acorn. It comes into a person's heart and its organic power is released. And if we will nurture that seed, it will grow and we will eventually become what Isaiah calls oaks of righteousness. We will become the people that God intended for us to become. G. Campbell Morgan shares this great story. He says, he was was in Italy and he was going into an old graveyard. He said there was one very old grave that was centuries old. It was apparently the grave of some prominent wealthy man because there was this enormous thick slab of marble over the grave. Yet an acorn had somehow Years before, fallen into the grave under the marble. And somehow over the centuries had grown up out under the side of of the piece of marble and it had become a huge tree. And it had cracked that slab of marble in two and rolled it off into two pieces. This was so amazing to people, he said, that a little acorn could do this over time. He says, yet when a little acorn is given a chance to release its power, it can do something a team of horses could not do. You see, and the seed, of course, represents Christ. And He releases His power into our lives when we surrender our hearts to Him and begin to grow in relationship with Him. And this is the question that we need to answer as we leave this morning. What kind of slab do we have in our life? What kind of slab do we have over our hearts? Because what I've seen in the work that I do, I don't care how broken or dysfunctional you are on the inside. If you bring the power of Christ into your life, it has the power to crack and roll that stone out of your life. And this is the hope that I believe that he offers a broken world. And this is the same hope that he offers to you and to me. I don't have time for questions. I know 11 o'clock service starts in about seven minutes. So let me just, let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the fact that you give us the truth that through you we know what it really means to be a man and a woman. And Father, we recognize that ultimately we're all called to become more like Jesus. And yet this is a work that you have to do in our lives. Help us to realize that our responsibility is to seek you, to pursue you, to deepen our relationship with you. That in the end that you would ultimately transform us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.